I mean, yeah. th- there is a, a big need for a big so- social vision. Uh, and arts should claim to be a part of that and very publicly do so and also yeah. connect its struggle to other sectors. Because I think if we are an avant-garde in any way today, yeah. it's it's the avant-garde of flex work. It's the avant-garde of, of yeah, precarity. In the Netherlands, we have the highest percentage of freelancers of all sectors. Yeah. Yeah. Right, but we're sharing all of the burdens with the with the delivery riders. We're sharing them with the uh, with flex uh, work cleaners and yeah. and, and gig workers. Uh, so I need think we need public imagination and statements uh, to connect those social struggles and and demand um, self organize, but also demand better regulation and support yeah. for different types of uh, precarious workers. Let's begin. Hello, hello. Hello. <laughs> so we are here at the Void, organized by Institute of Network Cultures. My name is Vaisa Imamovic. <laughs> I squat the INC office. Uh, I am an artist, a cultural worker, a writer, a web developer, an <laughs> artist again. Uh, precarious worker is the umbrella term that I like to identify myself under. Mm. Um, I recently, well, I do. I'm a f- also a freelancer. <laughs> that's that's how Wasn't I it obvious? Yeah. And our first guest, Sepp Eckenhausen, is also part of the team, of the INC team, who is also, well, you will introduce yourself briefly, but you're also a good friend of mine and a neighbor. Yes. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, nice to be here together. Uh, I'm currently a researcher at the Institute of Network Cultures and uh, co-director of Platform Build in the Kunst, Platform for Visual Arts, which is a uh, an active think tank, uh, as we say. So we research and the f- we research the role of art and society and take action for a better art policy. Um, and that's also the kind of uh, topics I'm interested in here at the Institute of Network Cultures. Uh, where we have the research program, Our Creative Reset, where we look at the structural structural changes in the cultural sector through and after the COVID crisis. Beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I recently listened to the lecture that you gave first at, I forgot where. At resort in Groningen. Yeah. And, uh, And I also took some notes about it, and it's basically about quotes about rise and fall of the social art policy in the Netherlands after Second World War, but also like how to take control over working conditions under neoliberal rule. And then also like it dawned on me only like I think two months ago I learned that there was this UBI system for artists uh, until what I remember 2004 in the Netherlands. But that date might be wrong. So I was wondering yeah. if we can also cover the history of uh, social or the art policy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great to, to delve a little bit deeper into the history because, I mean, right now it's just so obvious that the position of art workers is so bad. Mm. Uh, and during the COVID pandemic, there was just money thrown into the art sector, but it just, you know, 
was then done with the trickle down idea okay we'll just throw it at the top and it will trickle down to the freelancers and they'll also get their share which just didn't happen um and it's the so many of the time that uh, art workers are yeah just at the at the worst position taking the worst blows of a of a bad situation but then there was also something like the tozo in the Netherlands right yeah. that i know you also uh, enjoyed for a little bit which was kind of like a government subsidy that yeah it wasn't much but it pulled artists and other freelancers through with like 1000 euros per month yeah. and some people were like oh this is like a uh, a taste of basic of uh, basic income yeah and it's like yeah that's true and that's interesting because actually for the longest time since the second world war we had something yeah i mean it wasn't exactly basic I- income but very close to basic income for artists um and it was an integral part of the social welfare state so it, yeah, yeah it would be nice to like delve into that and see what can we can take yeah. today as an inspiration from that yeah and i would be very curious too you brought some books two yeah. books uh that we can look at the examples of the artworks that were collected because the allowance was allowed when you also contribute with an artwork to the to the government right yeah so so ma- maybe i should just start with a very short introduction yeah. of what this like s- semi ubi for artists mm. was um so if we go back to the period just after the second world war you see the the rise of the so-called welfare state in the netherlands which was basically that a lot of social groups were acknowledged to have a large social value but uh a bit harder economic positions uh so you got all of these different schemes like uh student loans uh government pension for uh people over 65 uh but uh, children subsidy for parents uh and so within this like broad s- spectrum of social measures also the artists uh got their share let's say um in 1914 yeah i have the list here <laughs> uh so in 1949 the government rolled out under the pressure of the 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 artists association they rolled out uh the contraprestatieregeling so the counter performance scheme mm-hmm. uh, which is basically if you're an artist if you're acknowledged to be uh, a visual artist uh professional one you give one work of art every now and then and then in return for that you get government sub- like uh, gov- welfare so uh you get whatever anyone else unemployed gets uh but you don't have to actually look for other jobs you can just have your artist practice you can even make money to the side uh mm. and in return so actually the 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 state would buy up your work in return for uh government subsidy so you get it after you contribute with an artwork no like, so you or does it work like so, a monthly allowance yes it's a monthly allowance exactly um and how it would work is you would actually like enter into an office where there's like a a table <laughs> with like like old white man behind it yeah. uh, judging if you are artist enough and okay. then if you would pass uh you would be in the scheme yeah uh at first for an uh, unlimited amount of time uh then later so in 1956 uh, uh the contraprestatieregeling was turned into the the famous name that we now know 
all of these different schemes under the, the BKR, yeah. the Kunstnerzeichling, the visual arts scheme. So that was like, uh, they would just buy up your work and you could stay in that basically forever. Wow, and you don't have to like prove it after a certain amount of time that no, you're still an artist. You don't have something. to go to the commission again, but I mean, you prove it, of course, by giving your yeah, artwork yeah, yeah. Yeah. every now and then. And, and the, the state was actually building up like this incredible collection. They had 200,000 artworks at mm. some point. Uh, that they didn't really have a goal for. Yeah. So uh, they didn't really know how to structure this and the, 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 the depots were filling up and it was getting too full. Uh, and then at some point they decided, okay, we, we're going to cut out that, that counter uh, performance uh, part. So in 1972, they made it a bit more restrictive and they put it out of action in 1987 when actually a lot of money that was first going directly to artists was in like midway through the 1980s uh, under the first neoliberal government went to institutions instead mm. under the name of professionalization. Uh, and then artists could, just like any other citizen, get government's uh, welfare. Yeah. Uh, but in practice, it didn't work. So they reintroduced some other kind of scheme, uh, which they called the Wet, Werk and Inkomenkunstenaars, which is kind of the same as the BKR. era. Uh, but just you didn't have to give your artwork and it was only for a limited amount of time. So basically, if you would graduate from the Art Academy uh, in 2007 uh, for, I think, like two years within the next five years or something like that, you could get the same kind of subsidy, which would like yeah. kind of boost you to find your own way into the art system. Yeah. Um, and then... In 2012, uh, all of these schemes were cut completely. 2012, not 2004. No, 2012. So under the first yeah, uh, Rutte yeah. administration, right? Which took seat in 2011. Yeah. So Rutte, for maybe people who don't know, uh, we are currently under the fourth uh, Rutte administration. Uh, so government headed by the liberals in the Netherlands uh, who are infamously instrumentalizing uh culture and and undermining its intrinsic value yeah. and under the first of those uh, administrations there was a budget cut of 200 million euros per year on the cultural uh, budget so a quarter basically yeah. it was just slashed wow. do you have any information about the criteria that like what makes you eligible for the or like criteria of the assessment like how to get into the scheme as an artist how was that how was the artwork judged oh shit I don't know, actually. I mean, uh, I know that it was done by this uh, commission. Uh, I know that it was mainly artists that went to art academies that got it. Yeah. Um, so I guess that one of the uh, things would, would be like, are you autonomous? And does your work have artistic quality? I think it was really yeah. that, that, that basic, that traditional vision of what, art is supposed to be like it's it's free it's not so yeah. political it's like uh it's aesthetic um, yeah so yeah that that kind of discourse around it so i mean the idea behind the scheme was really uh supporting a group and their social function and that social function was thought to be like uh, okay if we want to have a free and a resilient society then we need also autonomous artists so it yeah. was really with this idea of like free art yeah. uh, and later in the 70s 80s it was even said like uh, this is like uh, anti-communist mm. uh, not propaganda but like uh, it helps 
keeping down the the communist uh, uh, sentiments in the Netherlands uh, to have this open like the the, the yeah. liberal idea, right? Um, an interesting thing is that if you look at the literature, if you go back, then people were getting more and more annoyed actually at the the Baker Air, yeah, because it was felt like it was giving artists some kind of like exclusive position that others didn't have and actually it was also said that it was like promoting mediocre art yeah uh because if you just get money like that you don't have to perform yeah right you can just give whatever artwork yeah uh it was like uh supporting uh mediocre production but we can have a look so that's what i actually yeah. want i was thinking if we can also take this as a as if we are the jury and take this as an <laughs> assessment that's and, and judge the artworks to see yeah. if they're mediocre or autonomous okay but then then maybe <laughs> i have to introduce a little bit like i brought two books here yeah. i mean i we're in a podcast so i know that some of you can't see it but for those who are looking at the podcast i can i can show you these two books so uh one is second opinion about uh visual art subsidies in the netherlands uh which was published by nie uitgevers and mondrian stichting uh, and fonds bkvb in uh let me check i think 2009 or something uh seven even so uh like five years before it was really like finally cut mm -hmm. and here you can really see like it's different it's essays by different people from the arts but like prominent people yeah. and they're all so annoyed at the baker air yeah uh and then just two years ago 2020 you get this new book, so let's say uh, eight years after the last remnant of the Baker was cut. Uh, yeah. It's it's called A Monument for the Visual Arts Scheme, the history of a Sprachmachende Kunstenaarsregeling. Sprachmachende, um, how would you translate that? Uh, conversation. Conversation uh, provoking, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Triggering conversation, triggering. So, Nineteen forty-nine, nineteen eighty-seven. So I'm really focusing on that period yeah, yeah, when yeah. art was really bought, uh, and actually making a monument for that, and showing all these artworks that are like, oh, look that at what great art we now have in the state collection. Yeah. Uh, thereby not really acknowledging that this is just a few of the works, and yeah. a lot of them are still held in storage, like in detrimental. Uh, state uh, but also that this was not really about the artwork right it was yeah, about yeah, supporting yeah. the social group artists yeah. but anyway okay we, we we can have a look at like yeah and you also have some documenting or like something to show me about uh, where they're stored yes i'll show you <laughs> later let's let's look at this first okay 1950s so it starts from from there yeah so what the book basically does it shows like one page more or less per year and then shows one artwork from that year yeah uh, that was that was donated to the state in the so we we start here with the cattle apple right so it's like really like okay like blue chip artists here we go so we have a cattle yeah. apple thanks to the Baker air in our state collection setting up the standards yeah so it's called cattle apple Lucht and Mensen, 1948. So Air and People, 1948. Oil and Canvas. Like over a square meter. Uh, Shall we show it to the, the ones who are looking? Yeah. It's <laughs> the one on the, on the viewer's right. Uh, and, and so we can also see where the, where the work is now, right? It's now 
uitgeleed aan Schunk Glaspaleis. Ever heard oh. of the Schunk Glaspaleis? No. <laughs> 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 so the, wow, actually, this is what I want to know more about. The, the locations where they're currently at. And then we have uh, Johan Pole, Liegende Vrouwenfiguur, yeah, 1933. Reclining woman, so it's... it's a uh, in bronze, and now it's... Sculpture, a, yeah. It's a sculpture, and now it's to be found in Johan Pole's studio, I guess. Or what is Erwin? No, Erwin is the, uh, the heirs. So I guess, so what happened with a lot of these artworks is that uh, they were collected by the state, but then later they were uncollected again. Yeah. Uh, because there, so you have to imagine the state was just build, buying up thousands or hundreds of thousands yeah. of artworks without having uh, a goal with them. So without having a purpose. So at some point they made the Kunstheitlein. Do you know of that? No, like so, a... So um, everyone living in the Netherlands could like, like you get a subscription to the library, you could get like an art library subscription and you could go to your local Kunstheitlein art library and get an artwork that you would hang on the wall for a little while and then bring it back and change it for the... Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so that's what it means to uncollect, or like what? what no, they meant so by that, that's that's one purpose they found for it. But then later, the, most of those kunst they closed. Yeah. Um, and this, they they were like, okay, what can we do? We can, and they decided they should first try to give the artworks back to the artist or their heirs. <laughs> they were not interested. <laughs> then try to sell them off. Yeah. And if that is not, um, uh, they can't manage to do that. They can destroy the artwork in the end so i think in this oh, wow. case probably they managed to give it back to the heirs of the original artist yeah wow that's crazy and people would lend them actually and exchange them is there any statistics of that yeah i'm sure there's i don't know that now how many were were yeah. borrowed out and brought back uh, i mean i know that like as a child in my home it was very normal to go to the kunstheit lane and and pick a work of art. Even with my uh, elementary school, we did it. You know, we would like collectively That's go so nice. and like pick the artwork that would be in the aula for a year, and then it yeah. would be. So yeah, it it really also worked to bring this art, yeah, like in social contexts, not just in private homes, but also in public institutions. I'm just wondering, like, for what occasions would you actually lend a piece of art? Just really, just above your couch. Right, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. You don't need it. You're an artist, but <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm, like, how would it be for you if like people could go to this art library and just pick your work and and put it above our couch for a year and then bring it back? I don't know actually how I would feel <laughs> about that. That's why I'm wondering. Yeah. Also, like, I guess there's a bigger sense of own or like need for ownership today. That if I would right. want to like lend an art, I would also want to own it forever, you know? Right. Yeah, but I mean... But actually, I, I really like this uh, much better, like this habit of like, okay, because I also do have this urge to replace my posters once in a while right? you know, in the apartment and not just like have this constant one object on the wall, yeah. you know? Yeah. But still, I don't... So then, of course, then like, are we reducing art to a poster? Yeah. I mean, partly, I guess. I mean, it's, it's decoration, but... It's also something we're all sharing in something that yeah. we collectively own, right? If it's if it's paid for by tax money, we, we own it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's nice. I, I like it. Yeah. Shall we go through a few more? <laughs> Left we have J.C.J. van der Heiden. Cross, 1966-1967. So, 
deep in the hippie era. <laughs> this work was bought by the by the Dutch state from uh, from the artist. I also don't know this artist. And but it doesn't say where it's now. No, it's uh, so maybe acrylic it on, on acrylic. On, yeah, I mean no, ah no, actually because uh, all of these works were brought together in one exhibition to you. So this is the catalog oh, of the yeah, exhibition. Yeah. What is your general impression when you look at these different? I mean, everything that I saw f- until now is paintings. So I'm trying to get. Oh, this is interesting. Trying to get more. So we have Fritz Prinz Zonder Titel Armband. Yeah, the best man. 1975. Out and an Coda. So it's borrowed out to Coda in Appledorn Museum. And then opposite from that, we have landscape video artwork. That's interesting, <laughs> but it doesn't say where it ended up. No, but it's mainly it's mainly paintings and drawings, actually. Oh. Yeah, I guess as we and proceed photogra- through time, the different types of media will become a little bit more mixed. There's more jewelry and sculptures. Well, not really jewelry. Jewelry-like objects. Okay, so like, so you 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 uh, came to Netherlands from Bosnia, right? So yes. Do, do you feel like this gives you some kind of insight? Yeah. So we also have like conceptual art here. Do you feel like it gives you some kind of insight in like Dutch art history? I mean, maybe to describe this to the to the uh, listener, it's like it's a broom with three sticks instead of one. And and a sign attached to it saying Sam is Derek Idain Werk. So strong together work for everyone. Yeah. Uh it's called uh Sam Sterk Idain Werk by Hans Citroen, nineteen eighty three. Shall we show it? Yeah. I mean what, what like it does definitely give me an insight, but we're also like scanning very fast through it. So I'm like trying to first understand where they ended up, you know. Mm. I don't really have this uh, immediate. Um, but now that you ask me, it's yeah, I'm, I don't really have this connection to time in a way. What an answer. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what strikes me when I look at this, is they, they really picked out the, the, yeah, that's, the prime that's the pieces, right? They really picked out beautiful it's, or striking pieces. It feels pieces. like that, that I'm like, it's a very fine selection yeah. of, of, of things. Highly curated. Yeah, exactly. But I'm really curious about also like the scamming methods, you know, like I can also imagine that some artists um, would claim something to be art as well, whether or not it was art for them. And then like, again, like it links me back to this yeah. criteria that I'm like, how could they actually rate? Because if they rated what is Kava today, like how they rate like the working hours that you have per week and then a portfolio and materials and all these descriptions. Yeah. I'm really curious like to know more how it worked back in the day. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what we have to now put into perspective is like the artists that gave these artworks never realized that they would be, they maybe thought of, okay, I'll, give it and then it's borrowed out to people for yeah. in their homes. So that's actually some kind of serious uh, purpose. Uh, but they never thought of this exhibition, of course. But yeah. like actually most of those artworks ended up in a completely different context I can show you. I'm very curious about that. Uh, yeah, so most of them were really almost never really seen. Uh, but they just ended up like this. Yeah. 
So in huge storage facilities hanging on racks or like in kind of like wooden container constructions. Uh, and this is a picture from 2015. Baker, uh, BKR uh, Art in Storage uh, from the, so the National uh, News Broadcast. Uh, and and the title of the art of the article was uh, at least forty two thousand artworks in uh, municipal uh, cellars because <laughs> <laughs> the rest couldn't fit. No, that means that out of the two hundred thousand, they managed to get rid of one hundred sixty thousand, yeah. but they still had forty two thousand only seven years ago and i'm sure that many of those are still in the municipal collections because yeah. that's how it works you, you wouldn't actually directly sell to the national state but these commissions and all the system was just delegated to the municipality so that's also where these uh, collections yeah. were um so yeah i mean you can imagine that a lot of artists were like you know if if my art is going to be like this and yeah i'm not going to give my best pieces yeah to yeah, be yeah. put in some kind of storage right uh, so in that sense, it didn't incentivize the, the greatest art production. But so, yeah, it wasn't thought through very well. And those later schemes then were thought through much better. Yeah. Um, but can you access these storages actually as a <laughs> as a visitor? Um, there is not a structural way to do so. I'm, I'm sure that if you send an email to your your municipality that maybe you can make... Uh, mm-hmm. An appointment to go and visit uh, probably depends on the municipality, but no, there th- these are not structurally meant to be yeah. uh, visited by uh, the public. And there is also is there any information what they plan to do with it and with the collection in the future? Yeah, they they're trying to get rid of it. Yeah, so they're trying now to still reach the artists or the heirs, uh, and in the end, if they really can't, then they will destroy works of art. Yeah. So we also wanted to cover the future. Yeah of future perspectives and dreams of post precarity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I took a lot of notes from your <laughs> lecture. When I listened to the lecture, you made very interesting points, kind of like just more like uh, open thoughts. Um, and one of them was also to make more public statements. And I kind yeah. of wanted to talk about that because uh, I don't know also I guess in in relation to what's happening currently after the Ukrainian war and a lot of opinion production mm. and a lot of a lot of it fighting but then a lot of fighting actually for UBI and also like kind of like as users how do we perceive public statements you know mm. that's like how are they effective actually in 2022 yeah, so I mean, so yeah, for, for sure. I think that the arts sector in the Netherlands, but also beyond, is is always gets the accusation of not being very, or, sorry, uh, always gets the accusation of not being very organized. And this is true in some to some extent, but the, the problem is we always need to call upon or like... Uh, use again and again and again the power of imagination yeah. the power of the image because we are image makers right we yeah. we own imagination that's that's how we're being perceived perceived as a cultural yeah. sector um so this is the point i was trying to make is like yeah it's but it's it's also so hard right yeah so we, we need this kind of public statements but um looking at the beka air today 
is very important is because it can uh, it can provoke two types of reactions. It can provoke nostalgia, yeah, and this is what you see with a lot of older generation artists. Like they're really uh, glorifying the time when they could still mm-hmm. make arts, be uh, acknowledged and appreciated yeah. as artists and in their free autonomous practice. Yeah, and this is something we didn't cover now, but I think the idea of autonomy is still around. But it really as a social function it really changed yeah um and it's yeah it's true that's not being appreciated as it was in those times because we live in different times yeah um so you can be nostalgic and say ah oh, we artists you know we're always like uh, at the end of the like at the butt of the joke and uh but we can also look at it and see okay this was part of a of a large social program uh yeah. one of many schemes for fighting precarity after in the time of reconstruction after the second world war uh and in a way we're in a time of reconstruction again i mean obviously after covid but now what is happening in ukraine is adding to the stack of crises we have the uh the 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 climate crisis i mean there's a lot of rebuilding to be done and there is a a big need for a big social vision uh, and arts should claim to be a part of that and very publicly do so and also yeah. connect its struggle to other sectors. Because I think if we are an avant-garde in any way today, yeah. it's it's the avant-garde of flex work. It's the avant-garde of, of yeah, precarity. In the Netherlands, we have the highest percentage of freelancers of all sectors. Yeah. Yeah. Right, but we're sharing all of the burdens with the uh, with the delivery riders. We're sharing them with uh, with flex uh, work cleaners and and, yeah. and gig workers. Uh, so I need think we need public imagination and statements uh, to connect those social struggles and and demand um, self organize, but also demand better regulation and support yeah. for different types of uh, precarious workers. And do you have like any opinion about the cultural the shift of work again like uh, flexibilization of uh, cultural worker during the pandemic like how did these practices change a lot of my peers went for full-time jobs you know and then also a lot of uh, people that I know who have full-time jobs have started experimenting with art making yeah you know so like I also see this like uh complete merge of of the two practices more like the full-time and the the flexible worker right yeah and now we're actually are approaching the uh, the the notion of autonomy today i think mm. and i think it's really tied to this idea of the what they call the the hybrid practice so yeah. uh in the time of the baker air you had your free space, your studio, yeah. where you would be, you would make your art, that would be your social legitimacy and you could get money for that. Not a lot, yeah. but you could come by. Uh, today, it doesn't work like that anymore. You can still have your studio and your free space as long yeah. as next to that, you also have your lucrative practice. Yeah. So you can be a coder and an artist if at least you make in your coding time enough money to accommodate for your yeah, own yeah, yeah. Uh, for your own uh, artistic practice and i mean in that sense it it almost becomes like you know in during the pandemic you start baking bread or gardening yeah. or making art uh, in your extra free time because you're not meeting friends etc yeah um uh, but it also goes the other way around you know you you start from your art practice also uh, of course artists are always teachers uh but you can also uh starts i don't know going into advertisement or uh, co- yeah. uh, copy editing uh, 
gig work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that we see a further normalization of this hybrid practice. And this is even from the government's uh, yeah. side supported in the sense that they say, we embrace fair practice, which means uh, you don't have to get all of your income from the cultural sector, but the work that you do do in the cultural sector has to be paid fairly. In other yeah. words, yes, we should normalize hybrid practices. Yeah. For me, this this really is the the structural change in the labor market during the pandemic, which of course brings the question: Is art then really only as legitimate as any other hobby? Yeah. Or does it have some greater value? I was thinking actually when I was listening how you describe hybrid practices, I was imagining hybrid formats of art, more hybrid formats of art rather than or or like as a preference thinking about. Uh, new practices that like can there be new practices that for which we can settle full time and that are also like lucrative enough or like inspirational enough that we don't have to do the hybrid practices or like this yeah i mean sure yeah i mean flexible you, you, work some artists accidentally get rich it happens yeah. right i mean it's not a problem but that is like not good, just good like, on them that is not just like full-time art or full-time yeah. uh, working in a company you know yeah, I mean, there's this whole bunch of new ones. I mean, there, yeah, so there are a few artists who get rich by selling their art, their art, so they have a free practice. Yeah. Still, I mean, free at least of government subsidy um, or the necessity of doing other jobs. Uh, but there's Patreon subscriptions, there's yeah. YouTube content creators, there, there's a whole bunch of new online. I mean, there's NFTs, obviously. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of new online uh money making models but i mean i don't think that they are necessarily emancipating in the yeah. sense that of course we can connect people through those practices and then build social security systems that the government yeah. is failing to provide but it remains the fact that autonomy in this sense means you just sort it out with the market by yourself yeah right there's no social function there I would say that collective practice that really have radical potential really seek out the connection between the arts and other social functions like uh, healthcare workers, uh, cleaning, service industries. And I think the, the future of collective practice is in that direction. Yeah. But, yeah, maybe... Can I can can we dig in dig a little like for a few minutes into this idea of autonomy? Are are you, are you attached to the idea of autonomy as an artist? Less and less, actually. Yeah. Because to me, honestly, autonomy is like uh, the monster of Frankenstein, right? It it should be dead, like <laughs> like technically, it should be dead by a long time. But yeah. still it gets these electric shocks and it stands up and starts walking again because people just are attached to it so much. So at first but I really wanted people, to get... Yeah, like who artists? To, you mean to the idea of them being autonomous and fighting for exposing their practices as avant-garde or like... Yeah, I mean, I I guess that it's 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 the most simple way of protecting your art against instrumentalization. Yeah. Right? Because... If I tell you, oh, you're an artist, so you're you just make the world more beautiful, or oh, you help the energy transition, uh, 
yeah. go smoother or oh uh, you can tell companies how to deal with communication crises no that's not what art is yeah, about yeah, right yeah. it's something more some then maybe autonomy comes in there as like okay that's what i have extra yeah i guess this is i mean this it that's an idea but yeah i mean i actually find it more interesting to hear from from your practice perspective like what does what does autonomy mean to you anything like and can you also trace back like f- graduating from art academy did you feel attached to yeah autonomy? i mean i was actually like for me it's very related to the talent you know and then what is talent i think that's also like a very important question today in art that's like I don't know, I think in, since last year I've been talking about it and hearing that like talent is actually just having a routine and working on it, you know? And then you get, there is a point in your art practice when you get become talented, you know? Mm. If you keep on doing it. And I think that's also kind of like merges with my idea of autonomy because for me it's always kind of like, yeah, this unique but unique practice of art in which kind of like, I don't know if it's related to the time that you put in it or to the skills that you have or like how you combine these skills. But I think in the end, it always comes down to the funding bodies, you know, that is kind of like always defined by the criteria of of the funding, you know. Mm. So in that case, like for me, I don't really see so much, so many examples of autonomy in the art practice. And I wouldn't also know if I would have an example of of an artwork that is... That relates to the term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's of course yeah. it's a, it's a question of there. I, I'm pulling up this uh, this illustration by Yuri Verman, which I think is really great. It's like it says, "Autonomous artist, please choose your preferred dependency: government, sponsor, public funding, client, rich parents, or gallery." Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Like, and and this this is this is exactly the kind of formal <coughs> critique why I always thought, what what the hell are we talking about? Yeah. This autonomy is a kind of American dreaming, right? No one is independent. Yeah, we are all dependent on each other. That's that's what it means to be a social human being. But then why? Because like that. Another question: Do 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 you find that your peers, like people you studied with and that, that are making art now, do do you talk about autonomy at all? No, no. Huh? We talk about talent. You do talk, about <laughs> but really autonomous. I think we joke about autonomous as like uh, something that you need to have as an artist when you apply for fundings. And then we often talk about like, what do we have to do to fulfill that criteria? And if we are applying for funding, you know. Mm. So in that case, like okay, how you so can autonomy do is like an asset that you exactly get. that like you work towards okay. it actually. So your preferred dependency includes autonomy. Yeah. <laughs> or <laughs> exactly. the image of autonomy at yeah. least. <laughs> no, but actually it's it's uh it's really a joke for me, like this word. <laughs> really is. That is kind of like yeah, I don't take it seriously, but I do kind of like think about the ways I mean I'm also not applying for fundings, you know, so I think that in that sense it's different. But I do talk to my friends who are applying for fundings and when we talk about yeah, the criteria that like you have to be autonomous, how we talk about how do we prove that, you know? Mm. So in that case it's kind of like making a website is as an extension or like making an a unique website. A website can be autonomous more than art practice. That's mm. how I think more. <laughs> And there, there's one other aspect of autonomy. It's like, there's this idea, like, as an artist, you don't care about money. 
because you're autonomous. Mm. So you don't do it for anything ex like you make yeah. art for art's sake, not anything yeah, yeah, outside yeah. of the art. So this could also be a way of defining the autonomy. But then what is the, the content of autonomy, you know, in an art practice? Because yeah. I also feel like that comes from merging different skills and practice and making kind of like a hybrid format. Yeah, it's, I guess it's 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 defining a practice by itself, by what it needs. Yeah. Right? That you don't paint for the market or for the government, but for what you feel you need to draw right now. Yeah, exactly. But that also is so hard to prove as well. Yeah. I mean, it's also even pointless to even try <laughs> there's yet there's still the tension because you would never say i'm drawing this now because this is what the government expects of me but right? i do have for example when i'm drawing it's the one practice in my it's one th one habit in my practice or one art practice within my whole art practice that i don't count the hours and then i refrain from um, calling it work and I refrain, and I'm also like, I know that it will not ever be attached to fundings. Yeah. I also don't believe fully in that, that it will never be attached to fundings. But that kind of, for me, feels like the most autonomous or the most liberating uh, part of my practice, mm. drawing. And I kind of don't want to put it in these structures of like, yeah. define it by the criteria of the funding or how much it would how much I would charge for a drawing if I would actually count the hours that it took me to to draw one, you know? Square centimeter prices. <laughs> stuff like yeah, that. yeah it, it's, it's, I'm, it's unresolved for me because I feel it so much, like this radical refusal of quantif quantifying. Mm. At the other hand, it's, it's also, this is exactly the tool that is being used to subjugate artists so often. Like, yeah. Hans Abing wrote this book, Why Are Artists Poor? Where it's like, Define the art ethos. It's like you, because you're an artist, you don't care about money. Yeah. But it also goes the other way around. If you care about money, then you're not an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. Like it's the, the real deal shows by not being uh, so caught up with money. You have to prove that you're poor and hide your money. Yeah. So, so <laughs> like, but that can also even be used as a tool of government, right? Okay. But yeah. you're autonomous, right? So, you know, then you don't need money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You're, you're living your dream. Yeah. There's also, I think, sadness has to do a lot with uh, <laughs> defining what it means to be an artist. No, actually, I'm not going to go into that. It's going <laughs> to take so long. Oh, my God. <laughs> Cut.